Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, before we get to the regular financial market news and politics, of course, that we usually cover, let's have an update on your debanking dramas. What's the latest? Well, the latest is that I'm now a complete pariah uh, in terms of the UK banking industry. I've dared to blow the whistle. Nobody else before had ever done so or had the power uh, of the media, perhaps, to do so. And what I hoped was a lot of people would come out of the woodwork, and goodness gracious me, haven't they? You know, even Kenneth Clark, Lord Clark, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, was turned down by his American Express card. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, the current Chancellor, was refused a Monzo account. Uh, I've learned from members of the House of Lords. I mean, could you believe that? And he died recently, Lord Lawson, another former Chancellor. His granddaughter was denied an account because she was a politically exposed person. I've been through World Check. I've got all the data that's being held on me at an international level that the banks will refer to. Uh, some quite disobliging stuff in there um, from the European Union about me. No particular surprise there. But most interestingly, I just, I've never had so many emails, texts on any subject before, and lots of them coming in through Fortune and Freedom. So thank you, guys. You know, keep us up to date where we are on things. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff. You, know, you learn stuff that you didn't know before. I've heard of people going in to try and draw out cash, uh, being asked a whole series of questions, but it's their money. Um, one particular bloke was so incensed he couldn't get his cash. He said, he, said, he, said, he said, I didn't swear, but I was upset. Two weeks later, went to use his bank card, didn't work. They closed his account. I've learned that businesses, and I'm talking now about everything from window cleaners to pawnbrokers, NatWest and HSBC have just closed them down. Why? Because they're in cash business. Your local window cleaner could be an international money launderer for the Mexican drug gangs. I mean, the whole thing's crackers. And it all goes down to money laundering rules. Everybody agrees that G7, G20, OECD, IMF, European Union, that the international drugs trade must be stopped. Here's the fascinating thing that I've learned. For every one pound that has been recovered in the UK banking system through money laundering, the compliance cost has been £100. £100. Pounds. It is regulatory overkill through a series of European Union directives that this government, seven years on from Brexit, hasn't dealt with, plus a compliance culture in the banks of the city of London, where you know they're the ones running the companies now. I mean, even 25 years ago when I was in Brokick, you know, we used to call the compliance department the business prevention department, uh, but that has got worse and worse and worse. But the signal needs to come from government, and there are three things, three fundamental things I want to change. Number one, there's not a single case of any British politician ever in modern times being involved in money laundering. So why the bloody hell is my mother in her 80s on a list described as a politically exposed person? That needs to change. Because if it doesn't, Nick, you'll find that good people will not go into public life. You know, we'll finish up with even more dross in the House of Commons than we've got today. That's the first thing that needs to happen. The second thing that needs to happen is a recognition that actually these money laundering rules aren't catching the real crooks. They're just penalizing ordinary folk going about their business. And the third thing is, just as you have in France and Germany, and as we used to have in this country, until Vince Cable privatized the post office, 
everybody must in the modern world have the right to a bank account. My fear is this whole direction of travel, this real aim to kill the cash economy, to lead us into CBDCs, is, is, is it, frankly utterly terrifying and could be used as a tool of tyranny. And the good thing that I've done is to get quite a big national debate going. You know, we've had the Treasury speak about it. We've had the city minister speak out about it. A lot of newspaper editorials. I've never had so much genuine cross-party support. Emails, Nigel, I don't agree with your Brexit or anything, but on this, this is outrageous. It could be me next, you know? So so I'm pleased with what I've done. Uh, as for the consequences for me personally, well, um, we're in a bit of a mess at the moment, but hey, I'll keep updating you every week. Yeah, I don't know whether to ask actually whether you do have some, some sort of viable solution for, for yourself personally. Because this is just getting, it's, it's just mortifying, really. I don't have a bank account or one on offer. I'm trying very hard. It's now 10 rejections. Um, I've got another application in this morning. Uh, it's just astonishing. I mean, it, it is just as, you know, my, my, my business is quite straightforward. Um, you know, I employ people to help me with my business. I employ people to help me with social media. I employ people to help me with security, with secretarial work. And, you know, I get income from writing and from broadcasting and from speaking and, you know, from, from a variety of so eight or nine different sources, potentially, of little bits of income coming in here and there. You know, I'm a genuine, legit, above-board business. 98% um, of the income comes comes in from Australia, the UK, and America. Uh, there's no Russian stuff. Or, I, mean, I mean, it's all very above-board and straightforward. I fire my accounts. I pay my taxes. Um, you know, uh, in that regard, you would have thought that I was a good citizen. But... Um, you should just go cash, Nigel. <laughs> it's going well, that great. I mean, let, let's put it like this, Nick. If I was living in Miami, I would just go crypto. No, I really mean it. I would because I could actually pay for the car repair on crypto. Uh, but in this country, you know, I can't pay the gas bill on crypto. Um, you know, we're not quite there yet, um, although I suspect we're going to be before too long. Yeah, that comment on crypto was one of the readers' uh, emails that came into Fortune and Freedom, which was insightful. Uh, it's also, of course, Sam Volkering's comment uh, to both of us often. Uh, the other reader email that I want to draw on, there was three of them that I've seen so far, and I'm about halfway through the backlog of emails we've received on this topic specifically at Fortune and Freedom, was that a particular bank, which I shall not name, has been restricting people's transactions in a long list of ways very recently. Uh, and I won't get into the details of how those restrictions have been made, but they're making me wonder whether UK banks are worried about a deposit outflow. And the reason I'm raising that issue is that in March, we had a banking crisis in the, in the, crisis in the US where several banks failed. One of the key issues being that government bond prices have fallen. And these banks were in trouble because of that. And of course, government bond prices in the UK have fallen quite a bit as well. And now banks are getting worried about deposit outflows and trying to restrict people's ability to pull their money out and to move it around. Are you worried about some sort of banking issue here that is more to do with the banks themselves getting into trouble rather than just a, a political story? Isn't it funny? I've talked about regulatory failure with over-the-top rules on, on money laundering. But equally, what's happened with our pension funds and our banks is the FCA and the regulators have been advising that everybody keeps huge amounts of money in government bonds and they've been going down the tubes. And that's why we saw that sort of financial meltdown that happened 
towards the tail end of last year following the quasi-quartet budget. It, it would seem that whilst this is a problem in every country, it's actually worse in the United Kingdom than it is pretty much anywhere else in the so-called free Western world. The failures of the Bank of England and the FCA are of epic proportions. And it all takes me back. It all takes me back, you know, nearly 40 years. And I was working at the time for Credit Lyonnais, then a state-owned French bank, or Debit Lyonnais, as it was rather better known. And I remember when we joined the European single market and starting to see regulation coming in. And it's what began to make me Eurosceptic. Surely London is a global centre. It should be competitive and it should be free. And we're seeing our financial services industry ossify. You know, companies going to New York for listings, many other things. And whilst we haven't lost the jobs that people said we would through Brexit, unless we turn this around pretty quickly, we're going to see a major decline in Britain's biggest and most important industry in terms of job, invisible earnings, and tax paid. The Chancellor of the Exchequer on Monday in his Mansion House speech, did actually acknowledge some of this. To be fair, he did acknowledge some of this. And Andrew Griffith, who is the who is the city minister, you know, I think he gets it. I think they're beginning to understand the scale of the problem. The question is, have they actually got the willpower, the energy to act? Because we're talking here about a failing government, uh, failing in so many regards, and kind of is almost a slam dunk that Starmer gets in next time round. He will have no regard for this industry, no comprehension of this industry. So we really do need, in the dying days of a Conservative government, um, to start looking at the regulatory rule book and making some real changes. And what's interesting is a lot of this stuff actually, I mean, take the legislation on PEPs, a lot of this stuff actually is statutory instruments as opposed to parliamentary legislation. So they could just start getting rid of some of this stuff, and I'm going to urge them as hard as I can my expression was getting better. I worry that, you know, I do worry about the banks and their situation. I think they're much safer, Nick, than they were in 2008. But the bit that really gets my goat is that RBS Group, who I'm in, in my current row with, are 38.6% owned by you and me, the taxpayer. So we bail them out when it goes wrong, and they then can shut our accounts with no reason and treat us with contempt. This is, I think I've opened up here a very, very big. That's another point that Arita made as well, that the state-owned nature. Um, is one of the issues here that the UK famously actually implements EU directives, whereas everyone else sort of fudges it, and that's why it's so bad in the UK. It's as if they're laughing at us, like, these idiots actually impose the rules we make. I remember once I was, I was on, on, on the Somme doing a battlefield tour, and there was a little French farmer at the end of a road setting cheese. You see, it was all bits of straw all over it and whatever. And um, I just jokingly said to him, how do you cope with EU rules? No, 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 monsieur. This is my cheese. <laughs> a completely different mindset. Whereas here, you know, the local government regulator would close down that cheese store with absolute glee. Um, and that's really the problem. It's the enforcement agencies at every level of British society. And all these different quangos that Mr. Blair so, so kindly set up for us. And we see that have this almost perverse desire in everything from cheese making to fishing uh, to making life really tough for the little man and little woman. And again, these, the, the, this is, these are part of the fundamental changes 
that Brexit gives us the opportunity to do that we haven't yet done. But you're right, you know. I mean, frankly, anywhere south of sort of Paris or Munich, I mean, no one takes this stuff seriously, but they never have. One of the things that's, that's mystified me here is uh, that we shouldn't worry ourselves too much, Nigel, because all of the UK banks have recently passed a Bank of England stress test. I'm sure you're very reassured by that. There you are. There you are. Look, I, I'll repeat the point. You know, they may be in some trouble with their bond holdings, they are, but they are, though, in a better place than 2008. That, that I do believe. Mortgage borrowers, however, are not. According to research, um, the the burden on mortgage borrowers is as high as it was in the 80s when interest rates, of course, were much higher, but people have borrowed a lot more. Um, again, the Bank of England is, is busily reassuring us, although there's a Bloomberg headline here, which I wanted to read to you because it made me laugh quite, quite hard. Uh, so I'm quoting from Bloomberg. The Bank of England highlighted how higher interest rates could increase the burden for mortgage holders. Really? How fascinating. Gosh, wow. I bet they've all got firsts in PPE Oxford to come up with an analysis like that. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of talk around, oh, well, don't worry, in my day, I was paying 15% on the mortgage. What's the matter with you, chaps? The difference is, um, and I was paying 15%, that when I bought a house, it was about three and a half to four times my annual salary, the first house I bought. Now, on average, the first house people buy is nine times their salary. So that's why the problem is as big as it is. Um, we applied the old Taylor rule, which was the measure by which we looked to where interest rates actually should be. They'd be about eight or nine percent. Now, you know, let's hope and pray that they don't actually go there. I, I would like to see interest rates settle at a long-term historic norm of four and a half, five percent. I think we can all live with that. We understand it. It also encourages thrift and saving because people get a return on it. Um, but short term, difficult to see. Rates aren't going to wait I want to read you a short paragraph from the Financial Times, and I want to ask you why what they're reporting is happening. A growing number of countries are bringing their physical gold reserves back home to avoid Russian-style sanctions on their foreign assets, while increasing their purchases of the precious metal as a hedge against high levels of inflation. Central banks globally made record purchases of gold in 2022 and into the first quarter of this year. Why? Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you know, why not? I mean, if you've got valuable family assets, you'd probably rather have them in your safe than, than your next door neighbours. Uh, so I completely understand why. And actually, everything that's happened with the Ukraine war and everything else, whether it's gold reserves, whether it's energy supply, whether it's food supply, you know, there is now a strong argument in favour of national security of, you know, in these areas. Uh, at least some countries have woken up to that. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, central banks have been buying gold but there are also some significant, significant sellers out there. And, you know, my guess, we touched on this before, but my guess is that either side of the Ukrainian war are raising money through 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 sales of gold. And that, I, I think, it explains why gold has not done quite as well yet as we thought it would. Yeah, and UK pounds has been all right, but uh, but the US dollar yeah. just cost, yeah. Oh, in sterling, um, in sterling terms, it's very near all-time highs. So any of our, I mean, don't, don't forget, we were recommending couple of years ago that up to 25 percent of people's assets should be in gold but it, you know if, if you're a, a sterling based investor it's been very very good indeed my last question to you is about this hydrogen boiler trial which has been scrapped i think it's in whitby um they encountered some local resistance now why do these people at whitby not want to save the planet Nigel? because hydrogen is very very explosive and dangerous indeed and if we can crack hydrogen if we can crack how we use hydrogen safely, 
and it passes the test of time, consumer attitudes will change. Right at the moment, hydrogen has a massive density problem, which makes it impossible for use in cars, unless you drove around with a huge sort of, you know, hot air balloon on top of the roof. And for domestic use, I'm not convinced it's safe. I wouldn't get a hydrogen boiler. I think that's the way people who've been trialed with this feel as well. We're just not ready for it. Well, Nigel, uh, on behalf of everyone who's been emailing in and, of course, watching, good luck with your banking mess and, and good luck avoiding hydrogen in the future. <laughs> well, thank you. And just a, you know, a final repeat shout out to all of you. If you've got interesting stuff to tell us, please send it in. We do read your emails. And we'll put the, the email that you should send that in below. Thanks very much, Nigel. And everyone at home, thanks for watching.